Crested in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And uh, some of you may be familiar with me and my work in apologetics. I've been doing apologetics since the 1990s. Uh, have written several books in the area. The last couple of ones were Revolt Against Reality and my latest book, The Gospel Truth, which vindicates the truthfulness of the Gospels. And I'm also the host of Hands-On Apologetics on Relevant Radio. And finally, I run a YouTube channel called The Apocrypha Apocalypse, along with uh, William Albrecht and David Zavaris, where we dive into all things deuterocanonical. So if you want something interesting, you could check that out. But hey, enough about me. We got two hours to talk about the things that matter most here. And we got a great show in store for us. Uh, coming up on the second hour, there's nothing that matters more than Jesus, especially Jesus in the Eucharist. We're going to have Joe Heschmeyer come on the show, and we're going to talk about the Eucharist is really Jesus. So you definitely want to check that out. Uh, it's a brand new book, too, by Catholic Answers Press by that title. Also in the second hour, we're going to talk about St. Catherine Labore and the Messenger of Grace. If you're familiar with the Miraculous Medal, you definitely want to check out that segment. On this, uh, this first hour here in Crest Day Afternoon, we're going to dive into Scripture. And for us Catholics, we focus usually on the Gospels, but we neglect the other books in the New Testament, where our separated brethren often focus on the writings of Paul and sometimes neglect the Gospels. And so, of those writings that are emphasized, it's usually the Book of Romans, the Epistle to Romans, that is most important. We're going to chat with our good friend Hugo Delgado, and we're going to dive into the Epistle of Romans, why it's important, for sharing the faith, and what does scholarship have to say about the meaning of the Epistle of Romans? So, we got great stuff in store for us for the next two hours, but before we do that, let's go now to today's headlines with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Gary, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, November 28th. It's the Feast of St. Catherine Labore. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The tribute honoring former First Lady Rosalind Carter is underway. Former PBS NewsHour anchor Judy Woodruff says she was nervous about her relationship with Rosalind at the beginning. There was always something genuine about Mrs. Carter, a groundedness and a quiet self-assurance despite what she later wrote about her early struggles with public speaking. President Biden is at the service, along with former President Obama, former President Clinton, and every living First Lady. Also on hand is former President Jimmy Carter, her husband of 77 years. The 99-year-old Carter has been in hospice care. Rosalind Carter passed away at the age of 96. 
A dozen more hostages have been released by Hamas as part of an extended ceasefire deal with Israel. Israeli and Palestinian officials said 30 Palestinian detainees, 15 women and 15 minor males, will be released from Israeli prisons today. CIA director Bill Burns is reportedly in Qatar to meet with his Israeli and Egyptian counterparts to discuss a further extension of the truce. Sports Illustrated says it's deleted several articles from its website after publishing them under fake names and author headshots created with artificial intelligence. The existence of the articles was revealed in a report from Futurism, which couldn't find any evidence of the author's existence and found the headshots for sale on digital marketplaces. And today is Giving Tuesday. It's a great day to consider helping out, whether it's in the form of a donation, volunteer work, or just lending a hand to someone in need. Giving USA's latest report shows charitable giving is down 10% this year, falling to the lowest level in three decades. From the AveMariaRadio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I am Gary Machuda, sitting in for the great El Cresta and... As I said, my background is in apologetics. I've written several books in apologetics, including my latest one, which is The Gospel Truth. also have a YouTube channel called Apocrypha Apocalypse, where we dive into the Deuterocanon. So I'm familiar with uh, non-Catholics and uh, dealing with uh, issues that separate Catholics and Protestants. And that's why I'm, I'm thrilled to introduce our guest and this topic. We're going to take a look at the Epistle to Romans and see how this epistle shaped our relationship with non-Catholics and what it has to say about how we're made right with God. And to help us do that, we have Hugo Delgado with us, who is a revert to the Catholic faith from the New Age movement, and also was a Protestant who returned back to the Catholic Church. He also has a fantastic YouTube channel. If you get a chance, check it out. It's called Hosanna in Excelsis where he produces Spanish-language apologetics, has debates, and also Bible studies. And Hugo Delgado, welcome to Crust in the Afternoon. Uh, thank you, Gary. Can you hear me well? I can hear you fine, my friend. Doing, That's uh, great. Yeah, so, um, and as I said in the intro, you know, us Catholics, we f usually focus on the Gospels, and sometimes we neglect the other books in the New Testament. But for Protestants, usually the focus is on uh, not the Gospels, but usually uh, the Epistle of Romans and Galatians. Uh, why is that? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, like, I, I, um, I had this experience this weekend. I was just uh, browsing through Twitter, now called X, and I saw uh, a good friend, uh, Abby Johnson. She was, uh, you know, she, she was debating, or like, I would say, like a, a Protestant, seemed like a Calvinist, was uh, accusing her of heresy, you know, by, by and I was like, wow, that, that sounds like a very tough accusation. So basically, his argument was like, um, yeah, he's he, he saying like, yeah, you, you, you're, you're a heretic because you believe that you're being saved by works. And that, that's totally the opposite to what Paul teaches. And I was like, yeah, exactly what you're saying, uh, Gary. Like, even though, like, for instance, you can go and see how many times Jesus talks about, you know, like uh, our works, you know, following the commandments. And in uh, Matthew 25, when he talks about the sheep and the goats, uh, it's so clear that, you know, what is what will make you just is going to be 
at least in Jesus's uh, view, it's going to be a good works, you know, like uh, feeding the, the, you know, helping the poor and, you know, like doing those uh, works of uh, mercy. But, but for Protestants, that's just kind of like totally ignore. They will go to Paul. And I, I think the, the explanation to that is going to be, if you ask like a, an informed Protestant, they're going to say that uh, it is Paul that has expounded and, you know, like uh, developed like the doctrine of justification. And that's why they just look at him, basically. And everything else has to fit into what, you know, Protestant or, or the Protestant reading of Paul, which is pretty much like the way Luther, they put themselves in Luther's shoes, and that's how they read it. It's just like a template and and everything that doesn't fit in there. I mean, it's just like... Um, you know, in some way, I would say, in a, in a, in a very uh, realistic way, that it's going to be ignored in some way or, or adjusted so that it, you know, allows them <coughs> to hold on this uh, idea of that we're justified by faith alone. Okay, yeah, and uh, this actually justification, being justified, that's not really language that I think most Catholics are familiar with. What, what is justification? That is a very good question. I would say, it, I mean, there are like many ways. I would, I love the way the Council of Trent uh, defines. It's just like a translation. And then uses the word transla- uh, translatio in Latin. It's a translation from being in a state of, you know, like not being like a children of wrath to be children of God, to be enemies of God, to be friends of God. So it's just a change. It's a transformation. We're going to emphasize the fact that it is a transformation, that we are change and there's going to be this fancy word we're going to be ontologically changed that's going to be the, the, the catholic position uh our person brethren they are going to say that it's just only a legal decree it's a declaration of god and therefore uh once god declared you uh you know just then you're just and the, not, not, nothing that you can do in some cases uh, some of them believe that there is nothing you can do or not do uh, that will take away that uh, justification, that declaration from God. So so there is like a very important distinction here. Uh, but I would say, and I love, again, the, this, the, the uh, definition that the Council of Trent gives, which is this translation. It's just, you know, kind of in, Aqu- in, in, in Aquinas um, or in Aristotelian terms, it's just like kind of like this this change, this transformation, this this movement from 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 one state to the other, and 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 I think that that's the way we as Catholics need to see this. Yeah, yeah, very good. So it's a translation from the family of Adam, right? Exactly. And the fallen humanity into the new Adam, Jesus Christ, and like you said, and that transformation involves a legal aspect, but also it changes us and makes us righteous or, or just or acceptable in god's yeah, eyes yeah and, and that's a very interesting part because uh we are not going to deny the fact that there is a legal aspect it's just like if you go and and like for instance where you look at uh matthew 25 when we have the chief at the ghost it's just like a, a scenario of the final judgment uh there's going to be a declaration right god is going to mm-hmm. take christ is going to take some uh some uh and going to go to the right and they are going to be declared just, and some some are going to go to the left, and you know the the ones to the right are going to enjoy like the eternal happiness. So there is a declaration. Jesus calls them just, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's exactly what we're looking at here, and we we as Catholics are not denying. And I this I think, you know, sometimes Gary, sometimes when we want to defend the faith, we go to the other extreme, right? Like we we just want to to emphasize, you know, kind of like a distinctive uh, point 
so that in some cases we end up like denying something that we might both agree uh, happens. And in this case, yeah, we agree that there is a declaration, but there is not only a declaration, there is also a transformation. There is uh, sort of, you know, like, a, like, like so many things that are happening within us and, you know, in Catholic theology, we're going to talk about, like, um, you know, uh, prevailing grace. Yeah, the, we're going to receive grace. We're going to receive the, some, some theological the, theological virtues, and we're going to receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, but for our Protestant brothers, the most important aspect for them is going to be this declaration. They are going to deny the fact that they receive sanctifying grace, which is, again, it is very important for us. We as Catholics, that's going to be a very critical aspect of the justification. And then, you know, we are not going to deny what they deny. We're, we're going to agree that in, in, in this point of, uh, you know, like the legal aspect. But what happens is, and it is very interesting, they're going to deny that we, what we affirm, that there is like this internal change, there is this transformation. And once we are transformed, uh, okay, well, then, then we have a life ahead of us to do good works, right? Because we have, have, are now empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, yeah. So um, so Luther believed that the, the Epistle of Romans taught that kind of justification. And I know you've done a lot of work in the Epistle of Romans. Uh, while we walk through, we can start, say, in chapter 2. What does Paul have to teach us about justification in chapter 2? Yeah, this is, I mean, one of the most interesting things is, like, uh, typically what happens is Protestants won't, won't spend much time uh, in chapter 2. They will go directly to chapter 3, and that's something that, that I, I find, like, extremely interesting when I talk to any of them. Right, if they're just going to go to Romans three when, like, initially uh, there is this declaration that everyone is in sin, and and therefore, uh, you know, uh, Paul is going to say like, uh, we, you are justified by faith apart from apart from works of the law. So the Protestants are going to say, you know, that, that many of them are going to say like, hey, you see, you are justified by faith alone. But you, I mean, but you can say, like, well, but the word alone is not there, right? But they're going to mm-hmm. say, like, yeah, but it says that it's apart from works. And you Catholics, you guys believe that you can do worse and good works, and that's going to help, you know, help you be saved or being justified. And that's exactly what Paul is denying. Well, I would say there is a, a very bad reading of Paul there, right? And, and, and we can go and talk a little bit about what works of the law are, but I, I would say that the main error that they are incurring here is that they are like putting works of the law and assuming that that term, which is a very technical term that Paul uses, is going to include good works. And and, and that's not the case. Uh, I think there is that, that, that view has been challenged, even by uh, very relevant Protestant scholars. And I think, uh, you know, they, they will make that jump, saying that, since he said that we are justified apart from works of the law, they're going to say, like, that's apart from works. And since apart from works, uh, then that means that it's only by faith, right? So even though the, the, Paul the Apostle is not using in Romans 3 the word alone, they are just going to infer. And in fact, as you know, uh, Luther, in his uh, first uh, translation in German, uh, he used the, the word alone, right? So instead of saying, like, apart, he used the word alone, and of course, I mean he, that's what he wanted to convey. But but I would say that that's uh, something, as I mentioned to you, 
uh, has been challenged even uh, by by very well known uh, Protestant scholars. And I, I would say that you know we as Catholics need to understand those little tips and be able to challenge that whenever that comes, right? Because it's going to come. And as you said, uh, Protestants are going to focus a lot on justification, and for us, it's not that important. Even though the Council of Trent make a definition, you know, it kind of is not in on 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 our, our daily. Um, you know, it, it's not something that is so central for us, but it is very, very central for them. Yeah, so the major distinction is uh, it's assumed that when Paul says works or works the law that he's talking about doing good deeds or obedience. Right. And so right. by reading that into the text, it makes it seem as if Paul is saying that you're saved by faith apart from anything you do. And that's why Luther said exactly. it's by faith alone. Gotcha. That's exactly right. Now, and yeah, you have Romans four. You know, you have like a little bit more of that. You know, uh, you know, uh, in Paul saying that Abraham was justified by faith, and you know, since he had faith, that God counted that faith as righteousness. And and then they're gonna say like, you know, yeah. again, you see, that's a confirmation that our point. But 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 I think like uh, what's important here again is just to know that there is a big debate right now going on in Protestant circles in which, like, Romans 2, the way Romans 2 is read, is being, um, you know, is it, it, being, like, hotly debated now. And I would say that that's going to give us some views into how we Catholics believe. And, you know, when we go a little bit into that, we will see that the Catholic position is just really the position that aligns better with both. All right, very good. We're chatting with Hugo Delgado, talking about Romans. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. You're listening to Cresta in the Afternoon. What is Jesus Christ's relationship to the church he founded? According to the Catholic Catechism, whether the head or the members of the church speak, it is Christ who speaks in his role as the head and in his role as the body. As head, Christ calls himself the bridegroom. As body, he calls himself the bride. In the gospel, Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. This great mystery of conjugal union, where two different persons become one, is applied to Christ and the church. The Catechism says further, the Church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. St. Augustine said, What the soul is to the human body, the Holy Spirit is to the body of Christ, which is the Church. The Holy Spirit makes the Church the temple of the living God. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Please visit us at our website, www.maltausa.org. Christ is the answer. With Father John Ricardo. John 14. This is Jesus in the upper room with the disciples before he's going out to his sacrifice of himself for our salvation. And Philip says to the Lord, Show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been with you all this time? Don't you understand? When you see me, you're looking at the Father. In fact, only two people throughout human history have given rise to the question, not who is he, but what is he? The two people are Buddha and Jesus. Buddha's answer was, don't come to me, don't look to me, look to my doctrine, look to what I teach. Jesus' answer was, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, 
and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus is explicitly claiming to be God. He is honored by the church as a saint with the title of the angelic doctor. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote a basic textbook for young theology students that became the church's most famous guide to the faith, the Summa Theologica. It helped him earn the title Doctor of the Church. He died in 1274. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak from More to Life. Would you like to have a better family life by Christmas? Join us Monday, December 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, for our free webinar, A More Peaceful Family by Christmas, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Advent. In Advent, we're called to make more room in our hearts and homes for Christ. Discover how the grace of Advent can help you celebrate the loving, faithful family life God wants for you. And it's free. Just register at catholichom.com slash webinar. That's catholichom.com slash webinar. See you there. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda, sitting in for El Cresta. We're talking about the Epistle of Romans with Hugo Delgado of Hosanna in Excelsis channel on YouTube, and where he does Spanish language apologetics debates and Bible studies. And Hugo, right before the break, you, you've noted that there is a, a, a trend within Protestant scholarship that's starting to reinterpret Paul in a way that kind of aligns better with the historic Catholic understanding of Romans. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. All the things that are happening, I, 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 I'm, I'm very excited about some of the things that I see in the Protestant um, academia, and even like uh, some Catholic uh, theologians like uh, Dr. Matthew Thomas have done like uh, fantastic work that is very well recognized by Protestants. But yeah, definitely that's, um, I would say that there, there's been uh, a, a significant paradigm shift going on. And I think there's has, there has been like some, um, you know, kind of reformulations of, that are looking again on how this, uh, you know, Paul epistle and particularly Romans and Galatians have to be read. And, you know, big, one of the big um, questions is what, what does uh, Paul mean by, by works of the law, as we mentioned? But also, I will say that everything related with Romans 2 is, it's, 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 you know, uh, is being challenged right now. In fact, let me, let me, 
read Gary to you. <clears throat> there is this uh, scholar, uh, Michael Bird. He, he's got this book called like The Saving Righteousness of God. Uh, and let me tell you what he's saying. He's saying like uh, regarding Romans 2, he said like, uh, among the most difficult and dangerous passages to exegete or preach in evangelical circles are those which speak of a future judgment or a future justification of believers according to works. Uh, I, th- I find it extremely funny that he said that it's not only difficult, but dangerous. You know, he, was, yes. he uses the word dangerous. And, and I find like that really interesting because whenever you talk with a person about like any, um, or, or you combine justification with works, good deeds, or anything like that, you're going to see a reaction. So I, I, I want to warn our audience that that's going to happen, right? But uh, the good news when we're Catholic is that we need to say, like, hey, I'm, I'm not saying uh, it's Paul who talks about justification in which good deeds and works are, are, are part of it. So uh, Michael, Michael Berg keeps saying that the, he, he goes on and said, like, such passages, uh, of course, those passages related with Romans 2 are but puzzling and perplexing for the reason that they appear to be part of the New Testament message that salvation is by faith through grace and erupts out of God's bountiful and lavish mercy. So here's the deal. When a Protestant, and, and this is my experience, when I see Protestants saying that we're saved by, fa- by, by, uh, by faith through grace, uh, what they typically mean is by faith alone, right? So it basically what, what they mean by grace is not what we mean by grace. So it might, might be, we might be using the same word. Uh, we're talking about two very different meanings, right? For us, grace is something that will transform us. And we talk about uh, sanctifying grace uh, when justification happens, and that's kind of our renewal of our, uh, of our own being. Uh, they're going to see that grace just like us. This declaration that God you know, calls them righteous and declares them righteous, and, and that's, I mean, I'm not saying that that's the only, uh, I, you know, like concept that they have related with grace, but it's like, you know, a very, very strong one. And then, um, so, so what happens with Romans 2 then is that there, is, there are some passages, uh, I mean, I would say the whole chapter uh, is very Catholic, uh, first of all, but, but what's interesting here is that you're going to see some things that, uh, challenge uh, the Protestant view really, really deeply. So, so probably uh, if you know some of our audience has not uh, read um, Romans two, let me go through a few of the passages, and uh, you know you're going to see why this is very problematic, uh, considering the fact that a Protestant are, are going to hold. Uh, is going to hold this idea of justification by faith alone. So uh, we have Paul in in um, in Romans two. Uh, you know, he's he's kind of like using this diatribe, and you know, he's he's probably talking to either a Jew or like a pagan moralist. It's not very clear, but he's creating kind of this like a you know this this um, he's talking to a kind of an imaginary like a you know person here and then he is saying like for instance this do you imagine whoever you are that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself you will escape the judgment of god or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience do you not realize that god's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance but by your heart and impenitent heart you are storing up wrath for yourself and here is a very key word on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So, so here is, you know, Romans 2, 5. 
is a very, very good um, window into what's happening there because there is this uh, phrase that Paul is using, the day of wrath. And the day of wrath, you can see that same word in, uh, uh, you know, coming up a lot in the Old Testament, uh, particularly if you read like Zephaniah 115, it, it is like really clear, look at what he said, like a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloud and thick darkness. So so basically, you know, like um, the, the, if, you, if you see the scholar, what scholars said about this, I mean, he's basically talking about the final judgment. Mm-hmm. And then you can see kind of like the same final judgment, like for instance, in uh, Revelation 20 or like uh, Matthew 25. So here Paul is talking about what's going to happen in that day. And so many people, uh, you know, that judge others, uh, they're going to be, you know, if if, if you have, we still have a heart, an impenitent heart, then we're not going to, I mean, it's not going to be pleasant for us in, in that day. And here we have Romans 2.6, uh, like um, something that challenges directly the Protestant understanding. He says, Paul says, for he will repay according to each one deed. And you got to think that if you believe that you are saved or justified, because in Protestant, in, 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 you know, Protestant being justified and being saved are like two very, very related. But if you're going to think that... Uh, you you are going to be judged based on works because that's exactly what Paul is doing there. He's quoting the Psalms and he's saying like, for he will repay according to each one of these. And then he he goes and said like, to those who by patiently doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. That's Romans 2, 7. And I would like to stop here for a minute because one of the, the common objections that I hear frequently from uh, people that are not Catholics and are challenging the Catholic view is like something, it goes something like this. Okay, so how many good works you need to do? How many, how many rosaries do you need to, how do you need to pray? How many masses do you need to go to? How, how many, how many poor do you need to feed in order to go to heaven? So it seems like it's kind of like this unending uh, process, right? Mm -hmm. But it, I, what I would, what I, what I always say is like it's not about God is not a, an, an accountant that's keeping like tab of everything that you're doing. Paul is very clear. He's like to those who by patiently doing good. So it's not about human perfection. It's not like about being an accountant, but is by is this perseverance of doing good. And he's saying that those who do that, those who by patiently doing good. Uh, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So when someone comes to me and says, like, okay, how many good works? I say, like, well, it's not about how many. It's just about being constant, is being patient, and is being that constancy that that really will give us that eternal life. That's how the Bible defines that, and that's, that's in Paul's own works, right? So I, 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 I use that and being, like, it's quite effective anytime I have a conversation uh, regarding that specific questions. Mm-hmm. So keep on going with Romans 2, we go like, while well, for those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be anguish and distress for everyone who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no impartiality. 
he said, like, all who have sinned apart from the law will perish apart from the law. He's referring in this case, and we know that he's referring to the, to the Mosaic law, and all who have sinned under the law uh, will be judged by the law. So in that case, uh, the law and some people that is apart from the law, he's talking about Gentiles. So here we face the most challenging verse, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many uh, scholars, many of them Protestants, uh, this we we come to Romans two thirteen and he, here here is the crux of the matter. So he, this is what Paul says: like, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous in God's sight, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And here you go: uh, if you are a person, if you do believe that you are justified by faith alone, how are you going to deal with this? Because when Paul is talking about, he is talking about justification, right? He's, he's using the word justification. You're going to be justified. It's in future. And I'm going to explain why it's in future. Uh, but what is most important is, is, like, he's saying, like, he's not the one who hears the law, but that who will do the law, right? Who will, who will uh, and doing the law, of course, as you know, has a lot of uh, good deeds. I mean, like, you have, like, these uh, moral laws and feeding the poor and helping the widow and all that. So so mm-hmm. basically here, Paul is really affirming that the final justification, because he is talking about the final judgment, is going to be based somehow on doing the law. And and, and then person scholars go here and say like, hey, uh, so what, what, is, what does he mean by that, right? And, and that's, that's kind of like where this whole conversation is going. And, and again, I, I think we have like two camps and the Protestant side, we have like what we'll call like, you know, like the old school or like classic, uh, the classic uh, Protestant interpretation. But we do have a lot of scholars that are saying like, hey, you know what, when Pope, this is the first instance in Romans in which Paul is talking about justification. Is that, That's probably because he is talking about what really happens in the final judgment. So many Protestants right now are taking that stance of that Paul is talking here about like the final justification. In other words, what happens to the final judgment? And if what happens in the final judgment is based on works, then guess what? Uh, then Luther was wrong. And the whole Protestant Reformation is wrong because for in the Protestant Reformation, the, the center of it is this idea of justification. So if they got this one wrong, well, the justific- then, then the Protestant Reformation uh, was wrong from the very from the very start. Yeah, very good. We're chatting with Hugo Delgado. We're talking about the Epistle of Romans. You're listening to Crest in the Afternoon, and we will be right back right after this. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. 
The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Ciao amici, Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you, if you're not familiar, with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence and paganism? This is not just a nice discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because I'm going to discuss What happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent? When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Catholic family life is a liturgy. Liturgy is a word that means a public act of worship. And for Catholics, liturgy is an act of worship established by God and intended to heal the damage that sin does to our relationships with Him and each other. For instance, the liturgy of the Eucharist is God's way of restoring communion with Him and making communion with others possible. Well, when we bring that Eucharistic grace home by looking for little ways we can share Christ's sacrificial love with our family each day, we celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, the liturgy that helps God heal the damage sin tries to do in our homes, at the very root of human relationships. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for the great El Cresta. And if you've talked to non-Catholics, chances are the discussion surrounds uh, faith and works and 
probably went to the Epistle of Romans, and that's what we're chatting about here with Hugo Delgado of Hosanna in Excelsis on YouTube, which is a fantastic Spanish language apologetics, uh, Bible studies, debates, everything's up there. And Hugo, right before the break, you mentioned something I think that's really important because there is a tension within uh, this understanding of faith and works by, by Protestants that you're justified by faith alone apart from anything you do, yet whenever there's a judgment scene in Scripture, it's always on the basis of what you do and not on the basis of whether or not you had faith. And so that that raises a huge tension, doesn't it, within their theology? It, it does. It does. <clears throat> and <clears throat> not only within Paul, I would say that also um, when they start like looking at some other uh, passages in Scripture. So, so most definitely, and I think that is, um, you know, it, it's very acute. Uh, they might have some ways to, they try to get out of it. Uh, but I think um, the tension that those passages have, have been, you know, raising a lot of questions in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And and that's, that's where we are now. Uh, a lot of Protestant scholars, like, trying to say, like, hey, we, we really need to, 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 to rethink this because I mean uh, it just doesn't it's, it's not making sense the old the old view uh, it, it, it's quite problematic with some of these passages that you mentioned and that some of those that we have discussed here today yeah yeah it's it, it's certainly clo- it, it would it takes you a lot closer to the text doesn't it like uh, the new approach yeah. to Paul where yeah. everything seems to make sense within the context where if you you do the traditional view, that came from the reformers. There's a lot of things you kind of have to skip over and explain away, right? Yeah, and and, and then at some point you, you just get to a point in which I mean you just have to like definitely like ignore uh, or emphasize so much certain passages just to kind of like uh, shut up Paul in some others, right? And and mm-hmm. um, and, and and basically. I would say, like, the, the, that's exactly what, what uh, we need to think about. Like, what happens when we see that all of the instances of final judgment are based on works? What, what, are, we the, what, are, we, what are they going to do with that? Now, there is a very, very, um, I would say, famous, uh, you know, Protestant scholar, N.T. Wright. So probably not many of you many of the audience have heard about him. I, I've seen, like, uh, Bishop Barron, like, recommending his work. I've seen, like, many Catholic theologians, like, very, very orthodox Catholic theologians, like, praising his work. Cause, I mean, he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's really good, of course. Uh, uh, but he is talking about, uh, now when he goes around the world, uh, he's talking about that justification will be pronounced, and I'm going to quote him, on the basis of the lie lived. When he's saying that, he is, you don't, you, I mean, I cannot even, I, I cannot even, um, uh, you know, like share, like how much of a, a of a tectonic shift this is creating in, in Protestant, uh, you know, scholarship. And not, not only that, from that, from that point down, because I mean, we're talking about the, like the top scholars in, in their field, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, saying that we're justified on the basis of the light lit. You know, Gary, that sounds like really Catholic, yeah. <laughs> or very, very Catholic. <laughs> so, so that's why, um, yeah. I mean, there is like this whole uh, conversation going on, and there has been a lot of, I would say, like development in the last twenty, twenty-five years, and two or three 
um, very relevant scholars have produced like some 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 really great work. And and the more I see, I see like a lot of uh, coincidence and and compatibility uh, with the Catholic position. It's not exactly that, of course. I'm not going to say that. Uh, but again, tends to be more close to the Catholic position than to the Protestant one because again, if you are going to be justified or the final justification, the final verdict is going to be pronounced on the basis of the life lived, Gary. That doesn't sound Protestant at all. I don't know what you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Hugo, usually um, th- I think there's a tension even with the, the historic uh, Protestant understanding of Romans chapters 2 and 3, it, that there is tension there because when they look at 2 and it says things like, it's not the hearer of the law that's just before God, but the doer of the law will be justified. And it, it places that emphasis on obedience and so on. Uh, right. Then, then when they go to Romans three, they usually say, "Well, see, Romans two is just a hypothetical case. Like right. if you could keep right. the law, right, right. then you'd be justified. Exactly. But guess what? You don't keep the law, and that's why you need faith alone." Right, right, and and that's exactly that how this thing works uh, typically, and how uh, historically. Uh, you know, has been like the treatment, you know, just saying that, hey, yeah, you know, Romans is kind of like an ordo salutis, they call it like that, you know, the order of salvation. So in Romans 2, uh, and Ro- I mean, in Romans 3, he's going to talk about, you know, like, uh, you know, th- this is going to say neither more or less that all human beings are sinful. And then in chapter 3, he's going to talk about like, how are we justified by faith? Chapter 4 is going to be an example of justification by faith. And, and, you know, and, and the rest, you know, pretty much is just like how you need to live, but, but doesn't have any impact on your justification. So, so what happens is uh, there, are, there is a very important question in Romans 2. And once you answer that question, this whole idea that they have, this whole hypothetical, uh, uh, you know, example that they say that Paul is giving, it falls apart. What's the key question? The key question is who is... Paul talking about in Romans 2, let's go to like 25 to 29, right? But because he's kind of like talking about like this entire new category of people. And uh, let me let me let me read a couple of things. He's saying like circumcision, he's talking to a Jew here, indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. This is extremely challenging at the time because I mean if you were a Jew, you were circumcised, uh, then you were saying like, well, I mean, that, 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 that's really important. But Paul is saying like, no, it, it, it doesn't. You know, like, I mean, you're breaking the law. Your circumcision, you know, is, has no value. So that was quite challenging. And he keeps on going saying like, so if, and this if is very important, those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not be uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision. So here we go. So Paul is talking about a group of people, a, new, a category of people, that even though they are not circumcised, so they are not Jew, they don't have that mark of being uh, in covenant with God, they fulfill the requirements of the law. That, that's completely unheard of. So the question here is, is who is these people? And uh, one of the, the, some of these, Protestant, well, these Protestant scholars that I'm mentioning, they're saying that he is referring to Gentile Christians. And if he's referring to Gentile Christians here, when he's saying that, is the doers of the law who will be justified. And if you heard what I said, like in 26, he's saying that if these uncircumcised uh, keep the requirements of the law, 
will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision will not be called like I mean like kind of like Jews or like true Jews as he will say that uh, that they are, are the true Jews. So basically, if you answer the question, who is he talking about? And the most um, uh, fitting uh, answer to that is that the, he's talking about Gentile Christians. Well, this whole idea that uh, chapter 2 is just this hypothetical, it just falls apart. What he's, what he's doing there, he's introducing a new category of people that he's going to expound and develop in chapter 8. And that is a category of people in chapter 7 too that will refer to those people that have been transformed and now that since they are transformed, they are able to fulfill the law. I, I just love Gary. I love St. Augustine. St. Augustine has like this book called like the spirit of the letter. And he very well explains what's going on, what's at work here. And he's got like this, this sentence, his, uh, his quote, I'm quoting him. Uh, he said like, you know, the law was giving kind of like the old Testament so that we see, so that they see grace. And now, Grace is given so that we might fulfill the law. And this is exactly what's happening in Romans 2. You have this group of people who now can fulfill the law. And how can they fulfill the law? Because they have been transformed. Uh, Paul is going to talk about the circumcision of the heart, which is, you know, going back to some old prophecies in Deuteronomy 30 and also Ezekiel 36, 27, which is uh, a... Uh, if, if you remember, like in the Easter Vigil, is typically one of the chapters that is read, and it talks about like the new covenant, you know, this covenant renewal, these this people that is brought into the family of God, and they are transformed. So I would say that when we look at Romans 2, we have a very Catholic understanding of justification, salvation, and of course, that creates like a very significant problem for Protestants. So, so what I would say here is when we, when we read the context, when we understand what's going on, when we go deep, um, we might be very well equip, equipped to show our Protestant brothers and sisters that they're missing something very important in Paul, right? And, they, and, the, and the fact that he is talking about these people, they are Gentile Christians that have been transformed, that they can now fulfill the law. Uh, and why is that important? Because Paul is saying in Romans 2.13 that the doers of the law will be justified. And if, if justification has to do with doing the law, then guess what? Uh, justification by faith alone is false. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, this, you know, Paul is amazing. And uh, Peter points out that there's many things in Paul that's hard to understand that the unstable, uh, uh, you know, twisted their own destruction. And so... Uh, it's very easy to see when you're reading Romans, Hugo, that if you just take it on the surface level, it seems to be saying something about justification by faith alone. It seems to be talking against uh, any role of good works and justification. But when you get down to what he means by works of law and so on, it, it, has, it takes on a whole different meaning when you get down to what it actually meant in the first century. Yeah, yeah, I, and I, that's exactly what I thought when I when I first started reading Paul. You know, I came from the New Age, and and then I was like, oh well, but he sounds like a little bit Protestant here, right? But once you start like going deep, and and when you see that, I mean, he's he's really doing like a very um, sophisticated argument, and we look at some of the details and some of the nuance there. Uh, you find that I mean, he is very Catholic, first of all, 
but he's very he's very sophisticated and and it takes time uh, and it's, it's but it's worth all the time and the effort to go and trying to understand what the argument that Paul is doing in Romans too, uh, you know, from the beginning to the end. And, and and I call that, I mean, at least for me, Gary, it's just like the, one of the most beautiful pieces of theology that I would ever, that I, I've ever seen. It's just like, it's just like unique and, 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 and amazing, you know, how he's, yeah. you know, pulling all these things together and making all these arguments that he's going to develop later on. So, so yeah, it's, it's just really fantastic. You know, it's just like, kind of like being in a concert in a classical music, you know, that sometimes you have like this note that, you know, it's picked up later on. So that's how Paul works, you know, he he, 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 he drops this idea and then he picks it up later and develops it even more. So uh, once you start like reading Paul like that, you see, like reading Shakespeare, you know, you see like no matter how many times you go back, you always find like wonderful and amazing things. Yeah, very good. Well, Hugo, uh, we're coming up to the end of the segment. Tell us a little bit about Hosanna and Excelsis on YouTube. Yeah, that's a channel. I have a channel in Spanish, and, you know, we do a lot of, like, Bible study. We do um, we do uh, apologetics, but we do also mother work there, too, and, and, you know, it's been growing a lot. So if, if, if uh, someone in the audience has, like, people that speak Spanish and you, you guys want to... Uh, see a good apologetic channel and go to my, my channel uh, of Hannah and Excelsior. You can find me on YouTube. Awesome. Well, Hugo, thanks for coming on Cresta in the afternoon. We appreciate it. I appreciate it, Gary, for having me here. All right. Hugo Delgado at Hosanna and Excelsis. More to come right after this. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. St. Jose Maria Escriva says that we are called to light up the pathways of this earth by being sowers of peace and joy. This comes from being aware that we are sons and daughters of God. On the road of life, though, we find dangers, but God walks with us every step of our life, pouring out the gifts of His Holy Spirit upon us. Our Lady is our companion, like GPS in our car, connected to the cloud and bringing the latest updates to help us navigate our journey and get out of traffic on the way to the eternal kingdom. We don't want to get into family fights on our way to God's vacation destination, but we should be these sowers of peace and joy. We shouldn't accept substitutes, accept only the authentic identity of being His children, His sons and daughters. Let's grow in happiness and bring peace to those around us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Ever thought you'd make a bundle by trading in or selling your used vehicle only to find out it's worth a dinner for two? Well, it's much more valuable to donate your vehicle to Ave Maria Radio. Thousands of Americans donate their vehicle each year. The donation to Ave Maria is easy, tax-deductible, and supports our efforts to evangelize. A year from now, will you remember that dinner or your gracious and selfless donation? Go to AveMariaRadio.net to find out more. That's AveMariaRadio.net. And 
welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for El Cresta. Yeah, boy, there is just no more exciting time to be Catholic, in my humble opinion, especially if you're a Catholic who loves to dive into Scripture. There's just all this incredible new research coming out. And it's also a great time to be sharing and defending the faith as well, because, you know, as Hugo mentioned in the last segment, there is a lot of uh, development that's going on within evangelical biblical scholarship, and they're kind of rediscovering the original meaning of Romans, apart from all the theological uh, readings that were imported by the reformers. And and as a result, they're coming up with uh, really top-rate scholarship that coincides with Catholicism. Surprise, surprise. And, and of all places, in the Epistle of Romans. That is the epistle that started the Protestant Reformation. And so, uh, like I said, great time to be Catholic, especially if you're Catholic who loves sacred scripture and defending the faith as well. And uh, so if you haven't you know, cracked open the Bible, definitely need to do that. And there's so many great resources too. So there's no excuses, folks. Let's dive into scripture and share the faith. I'm Gary Machida, sitting in for El Cresta. You're listening to Cresta Afternoon. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And welcome back to the second hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for Al Cresta. And for those just tuning in, you might be wondering who I am. So really quick. I've been working in the field of apologetics since the early 1990s, and I've uh, written several books in apologetics, including my latest book, which is The Gospel Truth, put out by Emmaus Road Press. And you can check out my website at handsonapologetics.com. But you didn't tune in to hear my bio. You tuned in to find out the things that matter most, and we got a great hour in store for us coming up on the second half of the hour we're going to be talking with joe heschmeyer catholic answers about his brand new book on jesus the eucharist is really jesus talk about the real presence and how we know that christ is really truly and substantially present in the eucharist um fantastic work by joe heschmeyer and something we really need today by the way to revitalize Catholic belief and faith in Christ that's contained substantially in the Eucharist. Also, coming up in the second hour, we're going to, it's its the feast of St. Catherine Labore, so why not talk about the Miraculous Medal? So uh, we're going to have Michael O'Neill come on the show, the Miracle Hunter. We're going to talk about St. Catherine Labore. We're going to talk about uh, the Miraculous Medal. And I know many of you have devotions to uh, uh, the Miraculous Medal. Uh, I, I know the late Father John Harden was a devotee of giving out the medal. 
And uh, there's been lots of miracles attached to it, too. So what better person to talk to about the miraculous metal than the miracle hunter himself? So that's coming up on this hour, crest in the afternoon. So lots of great stuff, and indeed, uh, lots of very important stuff that we needed to know. But before we get to that, let's go to today's headlines with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Gary, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, November 28th. It's the Feast of St. Catherine Labore. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The tribute honoring former First Lady Rosalind Carter is underway. Former PBS NewsHour anchor Judy Woodruff says she was nervous about her relationship with Rosalind at the beginning. There was always something genuine about Mrs. Carter, a groundedness and a quiet self-assurance, despite what she later wrote about her early struggles with public speaking. President Biden is at the service, along with former President Obama, former President Clinton, and every living first lady. Also on hand is former President Jimmy Carter, her husband of 77 years. The 99-year-old Carter has been in hospice care. Rosalind Carter passed away at the age of 96. A dozen more hostages have been released by Hamas as part of an extended ceasefire deal with Israel. Israeli and Palestinian officials said 30 Palestinian detainees, 15 women and 15 minor males, will be released from Israeli prisons today. CIA Director Bill Burns is reportedly in Qatar to meet with his Israeli and Egyptian counterparts to discuss a further extension of the truce. Sports Illustrated says it's deleted several articles from its website after publishing them under fake names and author headshots created with artificial intelligence. The existence of the articles was revealed in a report from Futurism, which couldn't find any evidence of the author's existence and found the headshots for sale on digital marketplaces. And today is Giving Tuesday. It's a great day to consider helping out, whether it's in the form of a donation, volunteer work, or just lending a hand to someone in need. Giving USA's latest report shows charitable giving is down 10% this year, falling to the lowest level in three decades. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for El Cresta. And it is November 28th, which is the Feast of St. Catherine La Beret. And it's uh, through St. Catherine, that through visions of the Blessed Mother, that led to the creation of the Miraculous Medal. And this is a devotion that's known far and wide within the Catholic Church. So to kind of dig deep into the Miraculous Medal and the story of St. Catherine, we have with us Michael O'Neill. Michael is the creator of a documentary series, They Might Be Saints, the radio program Miracle Hunter, and the popular website MiracleHunter.com. He's also the executive producer of the new EWTN series, Hidden Gems, Catholic Shrines in America. He's a recognized expert on Marian apparitions who has appeared on NBC, The Dr. Oz Show, and Faith based media platforms worldwide. He's also the author of several books, including They Might Be Saints. And Michael Neal, welcome to El Cresta in the Afternoon. Hey, it's great to be back. <laughs> yeah, it's good to, to talk to you again. Uh, and uh, boy, it's uh, the Feast of uh, 
St. Catherine Labouret. I think this is a name that most people may have heard of, but maybe they don't know the backstory of who St. Catherine really was. Yeah, I think when we talk about Marian visionaries, of course, we're talking about a famous few, the children of Fatima. We're mm-hmm. talking about uh, St. Bernadette of Lourdes, uh, Juan Diego. But if you had to pick a, a fourth person in this sort of pantheon of uh, very famous Marian apparition uh, visionaries, we're talking about uh, St. Catherine Labray. Now, she was born in a village in the Burgundy region of France in 1806, and she decided to join the Daughters of Charity uh, when she was 24 in, the age, uh, in 1830 at the age of 24. And uh, when she was still a novice, she actually received uh, a first vision of the Virgin Mary uh, in the summer. And then November 27th, which is the feast day, uh, that we celebrated yesterday, and November 28th is her is her date. Um, we have the uh, the feast day of the Miraculous Medal, and that's where she received the design of the Miraculous Medal in a vision uh, from Mary. And uh, what's fascinating about this vision is she was sort of uh, guided to the vision by a uh, a young child who she took to be her guardian angel, and that guardian angel led her into the chapel of the Miraculous Medal, as it's known today, and there's this chair that the Mother Superior would sit on, and this child angel drew Catherine Labouret in, and uh, and our Mary was seated on that, and she actually sat um, uh, in, in holding the hand of Mary uh, as she sat in that chair. And this is the only case that I know of. of I've studied uh, plenty of Marian apparitions. This mm-hmm. is the only one where I know of where you see the visionary interacting in a physical way uh, with Mary. And so she was given the design of the miraculous metal uh, going forward and uh, again this is unique mary doesn't usually uh, give uh, give visuals in addition to uh, just uh, the words of the mirac- uh, of the vision but she mm-hmm. gives the image of the miraculous metal and she gives catherine labre the instruction to go forth and make this metal have its truck and distribute it to the world and so uh, this was catherine's mission and uh, she went on from there uh, to become a daughter of charity, and she lived in anonymity. Uh, but that's sort of the uh, the wrap-up of the life of St. Catherine Labre, and her body is now incorrupt in the Chapel of the Miraculous Medal in Rue de Bac in France. Wow. So so Mary goes to a nun who and tells her to, to make this medal known to the world. Uh, does that seem counterintuitive? Wouldn't you go to somebody that has a really good social network <laughs> and, and make it known rather than uh, someone that's kind of sequestered out of the world? Well, I think that uh, we could ask that question of many uh, Marian apparition choices. Yeah. Look at the children of Fatima and the messages uh, related to them that were supposed to be uh, disseminated to the world. So Mary doesn't always uh, pick the, the most... Uh, uh, the, the most popular messengers, you might say, are Juan Diego, uh, yeah. the man who had to beg the bishop to listen to him. In many of these cases, Mary is picking the humble and the poor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, was the Miraculous Medal known as being miraculous? Is it miraculous because of where it came from, or is it because uh, of miracles that happened in regards to the medal? Well, what's, what's kind of fascinating about the medal itself is that... Uh, uh, the, nick- the name Miraculous Medal is actually a nickname. It was actually called the Medal of the Immaculate Conception originally. Okay. But because uh, this medal uh, began to be distributed far and wide, and we have 
as many as 10 million medals uh, being distributed uh, shortly thereafter, in the years thereafter. So this became extremely popular. And one of the reasons it was so popular is because there were many miracles that were claimed uh, through its use. And we see cholera as being one of the uh, the big uh, the big illnesses of the time that it, it seemed to be effective in, in turning around. So uh, it got the nickname the Miraculous Medal, and that's pretty much the name that stuck with it. And it is now today uh, the most popular medal in circulation of all Catholic medals. And so, uh, and the numbers, who, who knows if they can properly track the numbers, but some of the claims are that there have now been as many as a billion medals struck and distributed worldwide. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And again, you know, coming from such a humble source uh, to have 10 million such medals. Now, in your work uh, with analyzing uh, Marian apparitions and so on, uh, the miracles that are attached to uh, the Miraculous Medal, has there been, a, what's the, is there a scientific backing for the miracles, or is this just a popular acclaim? No, it's a great question. I think uh, officially when we talk about miracles in the Catholic Church, we are in fact talking about those things that uh, have been investigated and approved uh, by the local bishop, perhaps ratified by Rome, and we're talking about Miracles at Lourdes, for example, those 70 uh, proof cures out of the, the 7,000, or we're talking about canonization miracles, and everything else is often referred to as a favor or a blessing or a grace or an intercession. And uh, But when it comes to the Miraculous Medal, it achieved that name mirac- Miraculous, even though those miracles have not been investigated and validated in a formal process. So um, normally in the Catholic Church, miracle means something very specific and very investigated, but for the miracles of the miraculous medal, it seems that these are by popular claim that uh, these things have uh, come to us. Yeah, especially with so many medals in circulation, I imagine, you know, actually hunting down and doing the rigorous study, <laughs> it would be almost impossible to do. Yeah, and and when we when you really get down to it, um, you know, we we think of miracles happening in our daily lives and around the world, and it's true they they do happen. But when it comes to the, the Catholic Church actually doing investigations of healing miracles, mm-hmm. specifically, there are only two places in the entire world, at Lourdes and at the uh, it, when they look at the sainthood causes, in Rome. So uh, outside of those all, only two places, you don't see uh, the formal investigation of miracles. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So w- after Mary gives the design for the, the medal, did she ever appear to uh, Catherine afterwards? So there's a total of three apparitions that have been uh, that come down to us in this in this history, and again the, the first one uh, in in the summer was an introductory one, November 27th. You might say the the big one where you where she sees the uh, where Mary standing on a globe and in a, in a squirming snake is pinned underneath her feet, and you see the rays emanated from her hands that reached uh, up out of her hands. Uh, that's the famous image. Of the miraculous medal and then there's a later one a third uh, apparition of, of mary uh, in this set so uh, we the the number that's given to us is three that there were three times and uh, the third apparition uh, we believe is was sort of just an encouragement uh, to saint catherine to go forward with her mission hmm. wow yeah that's yeah that's awesome um so uh, from what i understand uh your series which is Hidden Gems, Catholic Shrines in America. You just recently visited a shrine here that's dedicated to St. Labore. 
Absolutely. So uh, when we when we we're talking about hidden gems, this is a brand new series on EWTN, and the very first episode aired yesterday on the feast day of the Miraculous Medal, and we featured the nice. National Shrine of the Miraculous Medal in Perryville, uh, Missouri. And the idea behind the series is uh, we go to the shrines all around the United States and present the backstory, how the shrines came to be, and uh, what people would find if they were to make a pilgrimage to the shrine, and also tell the story of uh, the devotion, the miraculous medal in this case. So anybody who tuned in uh, yesterday was able to get some of the history of uh, this, this Marian apparition, and also learn about this beautiful shrine in Perryville. So it's a great new project. I'm really excited about it. And uh, yeah. the same team that uh, has brought uh, They Might Be Saints and also Explore the Miracle Hunter to EWTN is also behind this one as well. And we have a new host. Normally I host uh, these shows myself, but in this case we have uh, the uh, director of Catholic Church Tours, who's Nell Angieski, who uh, does a wonderful job presenting these shrines. So I'm really excited for this one and all the future episodes that will be coming out. Very nice. So uh, although you're not a host, do you visit the shrines there uh, during the prep work and stuff? or? Uh, so I have, I, have been, I have been to that uh, shrine uh, twice myself, so okay. absolutely I knew that it was one worth featuring. And uh, it's, it's one of the beautiful hidden gems of the United States. Most people don't know about this one. Yeah. in, uh, in Perryville. So, uh, yeah, it's a great, great blessing to be able to travel to these shrines and be a part of the show, even if it's behind the scenes in this case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I uh, personally would not have known about it had it not been that I, I saw that it, w- it aired yesterday. So um, can you give us a, maybe a little sneak peek at some other shrines around America that you're going to visit? Absolutely. So um, I'm a Chicago guy, and I'm honored to present the uh, National Shrine of St. Jude uh, coming up soon. And uh, we'll also be traveling to uh, Our Lady of La Leche in St. Augustine, Florida, which is always a great shrine to visit during these cold winter months, uh, in in addition to the other times around the year. So those are uh, two big ones that are coming up. And uh, we hope this will be a long-running series where we can feature many shrines from around America. So um, this is is an exciting project for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Boy, you know, you have documentaries, you have radio, you have a website, uh, which, by the way, is MiracleHunter.com. You've authored several books. When do you have time to eat? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, luckily, uh, everywhere I go, there's food, so that works out just fine. But but it's a great blessing to uh, research miracles around the world and bring the stories of miracles to everyone through EWTN. So uh, it works out well for everyone. Yeah, you know, I do have a question on miracles. Is there a, a repository somewhere, like an official um, <laughs> place where records are kept of miracles, or is it just individual so, uh, churches? So it's it's so interesting, and I think that when I originally started MiracleHunter.com, the website, I built that site in anonymity, partly because I was interested, but also because there's no other place in the whole world to find a, a complete listing of miracles. So I encourage people to go to MiracleHunter.com for that list. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on Crest in the Afternoon. We appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to Crest Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for L. We'll be right back right after this. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. The AP is now saying that news people cannot refer to pregnancy resource centers as pregnancy resource centers or crisis pregnancy centers. They have to refer to them as anti-abortion centers. 
because we're misleading the public by saying that they're offering resources, apparently. It is about consistently putting forth a culture of death, do anything you want sexually, being extremely woke every time you turn around. This is more proof that all they care about is their own agenda. And they're doing this to their own demise. If you look at the ratings, for example, of CNN, if you look at the subscription rates, right, of various newspapers, whether it's online or still hard copy in, in print, continuing to decrease. And yet they do not care because it's about the agenda. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. How important was unity to Jesus Christ? Very, according to the Catholic Catechism. He bestowed unity on his church at the outset. It is something the church can never lose, but with prayer and work, she can improve. This is why, the Catholic Catechism says, Jesus himself prayed at the hour of his passion and continues praying that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they also be one in us. The Catechism further states, The desire to recover the unity of all Christians is a gift of Christ and a call of the Holy Spirit. The Catechism says there are certain things required in order to respond adequately to this call. A permanent renewal of the church, conversion of the heart, prayer in common, fraternal knowledge of each other, ecumenical formation, dialogue among theologians and Christians, collaboration in good works. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak. And I'm Lisa Popchak from More to Life. Would you like to have a better family life by Christmas? Join us Monday, December 4th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, for our free webinar, A More Peaceful Family by Christmas, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Advent. In Advent, we're called to make more room in our hearts and homes for Christ. Discover how the grace of Advent can help you celebrate the loving, faithful family life God wants for you. And it's free. Just register at catholichom.com slash webinar. That's catholichom.com slash webinar. See you there. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for the great El Cresta. 
And, you know, the source and summit of our faith is Christ, and specifically Christ who is really, truly, and substantially present in the Eucharist. And unfortunately, a lot of Catholics don't have faith in Christ in the Eucharist. And to help change that, uh, we have Joe Heschmeyer with us, who has just recently written a book called The Eucharist is Really Jesus, where he dives into the scriptural and uh, historic backings for that belief. By the way, Joe Heschmeyer is a staff apologist for Catholic Answers. He's also the author of several books, including The Eucharist is Really Jesus, and he blogs at shamelesspopery.com. And Joe, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. Joe, are you there? Oh. Okay. Yeah, we're having trouble getting um, Joe on the, the air. But, um, yeah, so fantastic book in which we desperately need because for some reason or other, um, Catholics don't have faith in Christ and the Eucharist. And if we lose faith in Christ and the Eucharist, we lose faith in Christ, ultimately, um, is, is the sum and substance of our faith. And it, it's uh, it's based on revelation, and it's based on history, and uh, also miracles as well. And uh, Joe Heschmeyer, welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. Thanks. It's so good to be here. All right. It's good to talk to you again, Joe. Um, the I kind of already set it up, but uh, why write a book on the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a source and summit. This is as big as it gets. Um, this, is, you know, this is yeah. Jesus Christ himself. This, you know, it's not some obscure theological nuance. This is not, I mean, it, when, when you look at the Eucharist, are you looking at a piece of bread, or are you looking at Jesus Christ? Yeah. That's, it's hard to imagine uh, bigger stakes than that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And but what's amazing is that there there's a sizable amount of Catholics if we believe the polls uh that don't believe in at least the real substantial presence of Christ in the, in the Eucharist. Uh what do you make of that? Yeah. Where does that come from? Well, there's I think a few things there. There's uh, two sets of polls. Uh it was either Pew or Gallup, but I'm forgetting now, a few years back found that two-thirds of Catholics uh, didn't seem to agree with the Church's teaching. But when you break those numbers down, um, a lot of the people who don't believe are people who call themselves Catholic but don't attend Mass. Yeah. And it's kind of a two-way street. Because on the one hand, if you <laughs> attend Mass, you're more likely to hear about and given an opportunity to believe in uh, the Catholic teaching in the Eucharist. On the other hand, if you don't believe in the Eucharist in the first place, and you might say, like, well, why bother going to Mass? I, you know, I like this Protestant church better, or why bother going to Mass? I, I like sleeping in on Sunday better. Right. Uh, and so belief in the Eucharist increases Mass attendance, and Mass attendance increases belief in the Eucharist. So it really is this kind of uh, two-way street. So this is one of the things, you know, when we hear those numbers, we can imagine that it's everyone in the pews, you know, look to the left and right, and, and only one of the three of you is going to believe and it's like, no, no it's, it's the people who aren't there in much larger part. Uh, it's probably closer to about 90% of mass goers uh, say they believe in, in the real presence, which is still too low, but it's, it's much less shockingly low. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, too. 
um, when you factor in whether uh, these are practicing Catholics, um, because uh, there's a sizable uh, p- part of the nation that thinks that like Catholicism is their birthright, right? And you might not go to mass ever or believe anything the church teaches, but you can still call yourself Catholic because you're Irish or something like that. <laughs> right. You, you you give up something sometimes for Lent, and, and that's good enough. You know, yeah. that, that kind of approach. And one of the things I think we can take from that is that belief in the Eucharist really matters. Because yeah. if you really and truly believe that this is the God of the universe who comes to you in this intimate way for connection, every week and really every day, how inviting that is, that people, when they get that, it really does change things. So this is another reason why, you know, you ask, like, why write the book? Mm -hmm. Because this is a life-changing reality. Again, this is not just kind of an abstract theological or philosophical doctrine where, oh, now I know a little more. It's like, oh, this this really dramatically changes uh, who we are and how we live. Yeah, and that actually kind of puts another uh, spin on the poll, too, because, you know, of those people who are mass attenders and do believe in the Eucharist, how many of them really believe? Because if you truly believe that Christ is is there in front of you, that's got to radically change your life. Yeah, I had um, kind of a family member say, like, if we knew what's happening in the Eucharist, we would worship on our faces in Mass. Yeah. And I remember, you know, this was years and years ago, I remember that just being like a, oh, yeah, kind of moment where <laughs> right. I had, had kind of come into this, I'd, I'd gotten that it was true, but to really hear it that way uh, was was really kind of revelatory. And I, I give a story in the book about a guy who's working, it is a, a true story, but for, for reasons that will be clear, I have to be a little vague about some of the details, but he's, He's working for an intelligence agency in a majority Muslim country, and he's, he's posing um, as like a civilian kind of merchant. And he's being driven back uh, to where he's living in the middle of the night across the desert, and his driver is Muslim. And the driver doesn't know, you know, that the guy's not just a businessman. Hmm. And the driver says to him, you know, why are you here? And this is, you know, not the uh, not what you want to hear, I guess, when you're uh, undercover. And <laughs> right. it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And so the guy's, you know, alarmed and concerned. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, well, why are you here? You know, you've told me you're a Catholic, and you have a room where you believe God is. I'm a Muslim, but if I truly believed there was a room where God was, I would never leave that room. <laughs> Hmm. And and the guy thought this was like just the most incredible point. It was clearly God speaking to him uh, through this Muslim driver, hmm. and uh, he left the intelligence agency and he uh, went to work in Christian ministry. We'll say, and and it was just a, a really radical uh, life change. Just taking that seriously, just taking it seriously to believe in the Eucharist. Now, we can get into why, and we can get into how, and all of this stuff, but just getting clear that those are the stakes. This is not something where you can just say, yes, the real presence is true, and and then just live your life like you did before. You really need to take seriously, if the real presence is true, 
does my life reflect that? Like, do I spend time with the God of the universe who I believe is there, or do I just give him the bare minimum that I am required to give him, or, or maybe even less than that? Yeah. Yeah, it would, it would almost be, uh, you hear news that Jesus descended from heaven and is in the neighboring town, and you would say, well, I'll check into that in a couple of days. I got other things to do. <laughs> it's like, who in their <laughs> right mind would do that, right? You you would jump in your car imagine, and head over there. Great analogy. Yeah. Right. Imagine time traveling back to the first century in Judea, and you know Jesus is you know going to be delivering the Sermon on the Mount. You're like, yeah, but I want to see what local cuisine is like. I want to do a little bit of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. I, you know, like shopping around and all get a good feel for the place. Like, no, no. That's insane. <laughs> you don't see Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when you ask people, uh, what famous person would you have dinner with? Like, Jesus is always, and rightfully, at the top of that list. But right. it's like, okay, great, because he's actually inviting you to dinner. So are you going to show up, or is that just something you say to interviewers? Hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great connection. So... um so the stakes are high. It should transform your life if you truly believe it. Um, the question is, well, when you're writing the book, uh, who are you aiming at? Were you aiming at people who do believe but haven't, um, you know, uh, put their lives in line with that belief? Or are you aiming towards the people that maybe don't believe? So I tried to make a book that is going to have something for everyone. And I thought the, the kind of the way to do that was to approach it at sort of a funny angle. And by that I mean there are a lot of straightforward uh, books about the Eucharist that just say, okay, great, what is the Church's doctrine? What are some Bible verses in support of the doctrine? Uh, what are some quotes from the Church Fathers in support of the doctrine? You know, maybe some mm -hmm. logical or philosophical arguments. And all of that's good, and, and you'll find plenty of that in the book. So I think you, you kind of have to do that stuff if you've got readers who maybe don't even know what the Church believes in the first place. Uh, mm -hmm. But I wanted something where if, if you grew up Catholic and maybe are still a practicing Catholic and just want to go a little deeper, uh, without being in the weeds in a sort of academic way, to have a, a different kind of view or a different kind of angle so the, the approach I've taken in the book is to say, okay, look, on the road to Emmaus, on Easter Sunday, Jesus is walking with the two disciples, and he's explaining the scriptures to them. And they don't know it's him. And so they get to Emmaus. So you have this kind of liturgy of the Word in which they are journeying together, looking at the Old Testament scriptures, hearing the proclamation of the gospel from Jesus himself, the greatest homily that you have to imagine has ever been given. And they get to Emmaus, and it's dinner time, and they invite Jesus in to dine with him. And we're told that he takes the bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to them. Now, there's a reason that St. Luke gives us four verbs about what Jesus is doing here, and it's not that Luke doesn't think you know, you know how to eat bread. You don't need to take four verbs to explain, yeah, they, they prayed for their food, and then they ate. Uh, mm -hmm. they, but this is a very liturgical kind of formula, and in fact we find those same four verbs in the Gospel accounts of the institution of the Eucharist. And so this is a very Eucharistic kind of moment. And then we're told that their eyes opened, 
and they recognize it as Jesus, and he disappears visibly from their midst. And then so you've got this kind of liturgy of the Eucharist, and then you have the dismissal, right? Like mass comes from the word for dismissal, the going forth empowered by the Eucharist. They go back to Jerusalem, and we're told they tell how they recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. Uh, and if that's not enough, it's also only once they get that light of the Eucharist that they can see how Jesus opens the rest of the scriptures. Yeah, beautiful. We're chatting with Joe Heschmeyer, staff apologist for Catholic Answers, talking about his brand new book, The Eucharist is Really Jesus. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. The wisdom of Mother Angelica. Have you ever been so grief-stricken and so heart-sick that you can't see God? You can't see God in the tragedy. You can't see God in that cross. You can't see God in that sick. Why? You're enveloped in that grief. You're enveloped in fear. And God is out the window. You don't see Him standing right next to you. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. Dr. Ray Garendi. He's not on drugs. Parents will come into my office and describe a litany of trouble about this long. Then they'll say this, I'm giving you the wrong impression. Overall, he's a pretty good kid. How so? Well, he's not on drugs or anything like that. One of the new moral high bars out there, he's not on drugs. You want to raise a child not with the absence of pathology, but with the presence of virtue. She's miserable with me, but she treats everybody else great. Again, not the absence of bad behavior, but the presence of good behavior. He's not on drugs? <laughs> it's a rationale. may provide some comfort. It's not a path to virtue. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. John chapter 8, verse 51. 
Jesus is in a discussion with some of the leaders of the Jews. They're talking about Abraham. Abraham lived 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. So in the course of the discussion, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He says that often in the Gospels. He who keeps my word or believes in me will never die. To which the Jews say, Now we know you have a demon. And they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. All the patriarchs, the great men and women of the history of Israel. All these people died, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets, who died? And Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. To which the Jews say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for El Cresta. We're chatting with Joe Heschmeyer, author of the book, The Eucharist is Really Jesus. And Joe, and you were finishing in that last segment we were talking, talking about the Emmaus Road. And uh, that's a fascinating passage to consider because it, it, the Catechism teaches that Jesus is present in different ways in the sacraments and the proclamation of the Gospels. And when you read that uh, passage, it says that the, the apostles say that their hearts were burning when he was going through and giving this Messianic Bible study, right? But it didn't click yeah. until he did the Eucharist. Exactly. Exactly. That there is a mode in which Christ really is present in in the small W Word of God. You know, Jesus is the capital W Word of God, and He's present. And, and so Scripture really is alive and active in, in a certain way. But you can miss that without the Eucharistic kind of key. And so here they've heard the greatest homily, perhaps, ever, mm-hmm. and they don't get it until the Eucharist makes everything come to life. And so that's you know, one of the things I say in the book is that the Eucharist is true. C.S. Lewis has this line about Christianity in general, and he says he believes in Christianity uh, for the same reason that he believes in the Son, not only that he can see it, but that he can see all things by it. You know, mm-hmm. that both, here I can see why this thing is true, but also it makes sense of everything else in my life. Well, the Eucharist is the same way. Not only can we see the direct way that we were talking about before, yeah, here, look, all these Bible verses support it, all of this supports it, but also, look at that, it explains all these other things. And so that's kind of the encounter of the disciples at the road to Emmaus, that they're like, wait a second, not only do we now recognize Jesus in this new way, but also we realize that he'd opened up the Scriptures for us and we'd missed it. And, and now we see all things by it. Yeah, 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 beautiful. So um, it, it, it makes sense of life. It orders our devotion. It, it even has moral applications, you know, how I ought to live, because I'm going to see Jesus next time I go to the Eucharist. Um, but it, like you said, there's also this evidence that points towards Jesus. And being an apologist, um, is there a particular passage in Scripture that you think is the most solid or the most um, powerful as far as pointing to the, the real, true, substantial presence of Christ? Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely have to go John 6. 
as as you sort of walk through John six, not not a single verse, taking the whole chapter, and really slowly kind of working through it. And I think it's hard to come away with anything other than that John is showing us that Jesus is teaching the real presence, and that he's doing it uh, a year before the Last Supper. Uh, John six chapter or, or chapter six verse four. Uh, says that he's doing this at Passover time. And so it's one year prior to the Last Supper, and it, the Passover is also significant because the Passover is a prefigurement of the Eucharist, that in the Passover you have the sacrifice of the Lamb that is then fulfilled and completed in the eating of the Lamb. And so the sacrifice of the Lamb is a prefigurement of Calvary, the, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on the cross. Well, in the Passover liturgy, there's, there's another thing that has to happen, and that's you then have to eat the lamb. And so what is that a prefigurement of? Well, it's a prefigurement of Mass. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost as if God set it up that way, you know, <laughs> that the Exodus and, yes. and Passover. And uh, so it, it would have stood to reason that if the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, is a Passover meal, that you'd have to consume the victim of the the sacrifice, which would be the Passover lamb, who John the Baptist says and, is you know, Jesus. Saint Paul says this this really clearly in First Corinthians ten, in a passage that I think people overlook. Hmm. He has a really fascinating point where he says that when we drink what he calls the cup of blessing, we're participating in the blood of Christ. And then he describes the receiving the Eucharistic bread as a participation in the body of Christ. And to explain what he means by this, he compares it to two things. Number one, the Jewish temple sacrifices, where to become a partner in the altar, you had to eat the sacrifice. But then, more shockingly, he also compares it to the sacrifices that pagans are making to demons, that they then become partners with the demons by eating at the demonic altars, which he calls the table of demons. And he compares those things to what he says is happening what he calls the table of the Lord. And two things follow from that. Number one, the whole passage is just about the need to eat the sacrificial offering. And number two, it becomes clear what he means by the table of the Lord is not just, you know, a Thanksgiving table, but is, is also this sacrificial table, like an altar. And, and so it, it brings to life what we mean by these terms in the New Testament that we can otherwise totally missed. Because look, if the Eucharist isn't a sacrifice, if we're not actually eating the sacrificed Lord, then it becomes very unclear what Paul is talking about when he compares it to the Jewish and the pagan sacrifices. Because the whole point he's making is, you have to eat the sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's a major obstacle with non-Catholics, is the pragmatism. Like, why do we have to consume Jesus? It doesn't make sense, you know? Uh, yeah, if, I mean, you, you hear yeah, people say, oh, aren't you re-sacrificing him, you know? And it's like, no, no, you just don't understand how the sacrifices work, because for both Jewish and pagan sacrifices, you know, there's a reason no one in the early Church made this argument about, oh, this is a re-sacrifice of Christ. You find people talking in very explicit terms about how the Eucharist is a sacrifice, and how we are eating this sacrifice and becoming partners with Christ. And no one says, well, didn't Christ do the sacrifice already? Because they knew there were two aspects. You have 
the killing of the animal, or in this case, the killing of the Lamb of God, and then you have the eating. And that's not a, a second sacrifice, that's a completion or an application of the one sacrifice. So at that pragmatic level, I always say this, like if, if you ask a Protestant, when were you saved? You'll get an answer. It might be, you know, in the case of some more high church ones, at their baptism, and many other more like evangelical, it'll be when they came to a belief in Christ, or they prayed the Lord's, you know, the sinner's prayer, or, or some other kind of moment in their life. They never say, in my experience, this has never happened, no one has ever said, uh, Good Friday. Because they realize on some basic level that, yes, Christ wins salvation, but that still has to be applied in my life somehow. That the blood of Christ needs to be brought home to me in some way. And so once you say that, and you're like, yeah, but that's not really sacrificing them, right? You're just applying the sacrifice. Well, now we have a whole different kind of realm to talk about, where we're not doing something because Good Friday wasn't good enough. We just realize Good Friday has to come home. Yeah. Yeah, boy, what excellent answer. Uh, because often they'll use graphic language, like, I, I was covered in the blood of Christ, right? And that's the only reason right. why I'm forgiven. So it's like you could use the same logic to say, oh, so you have to re-sacrifice Christ in order to get his blood. And they would, of course, would say no. Even that language, right? Like, think about the yeah. Passover. After you kill the Passover lamb, you do two things. You, you smear the blood on the doorpost, which we believe represents Jesus' blood on the wood of the cross. Mm-hmm. And then you you eat the lamb. Well, we also have a sort of, as you have, you know, a smearing of the blood in terms of our drinking the blood of Christ, where my body becomes the place where the blood of Christ is actually applied. Like, I am not just metaphorically covered by the blood, I am actually participating in the blood in a direct physical kind of encounter, that my body is brought into this incredible encounter with the blood of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's another aspect, too. It's almost like the body doesn't matter. It's your soul that's saved, you know. But Christ Gregory saves Mitzvah us both body and soul. Very explicitly. Mm-hmm. If, if we were just angels, or if the Gnostics were right, that the body is just a prison, which is fascinatingly, and we don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but John Calvin describes the body as a prison, which was the heretical Gnostic view of the body. Whereas the Christian view is that the body is a, a gift from God, that he's the creator of the body, not the devil. And so the physical world is good, and if you don't believe the physical world is good, then you don't believe the incarnation is good. Because in the incarnation, as John 1 says, the Word became flesh. And so we have to believe that the world, the created order, even after the fall, is still good and is worth saving. Or else you make no sense of the whole Christian story. The Christian story is not to save us from the body or from the created world. The Christian story is to save the created world. And that's a very different understanding between the Christian and the Gnostic. And so in this, uh, you know, Christ comes and he works through the flesh and in all of this. Well, Gregory of Nyssa says, if we were just angels, if we were just souls without bodies, faith alone would be enough for salvation. And it's so fascinating that he makes this point that later Protestants will think that is all you need because they're only thinking of the soul and not the body. But Gregory says, because we're body and soul, Christ comes both at the level of faith and at the level of the Eucharist, so that our body, and not just our mind or our soul, is saved. 
Yeah, beautiful. Isn't it? Ignatius of Antioch speaks of it as like medicinal terms, right? Uh, yeah, the medicine it, of immortality. Yeah, yeah. And so that, I, I actually have a chapter in the book where I, where I explore that because one of the things that I found really shocking was over and over again, even Christians in the second century, like Ignatius and Irenaeus, uh, would make these connections between the Eucharist and bodily resurrection. And at first blush, you're like, well, what, what do those two things have in common? And then you go back and read John 6, and Jesus says that whoever you know, eats him will live forever. And it's clearly a reference to bodily resurrection in context, that this rising again and living forever with Christ. So in some mysterious way, the body is brought into this. Well, Gregory, several of the early Christians explain this connection that they see. Augustine has it, but I really like Gregory's. When he explains, you know, so Christ, as he's walking around among us through the Incarnation, he's eating and drinking the ordinary food of the day, and bread and wine were staples of the first century Jewish diet. You know, there's even special prayers for bread and for wine, because bread, wine, and oil are the three that have special um, Jewish prayers because they were that commonly eaten. And so Jesus regularly ate bread and drank wine and turned it into his body and blood through metabolism, the same way you and I might turn a bagel into our flesh or, you know, turn a soft drink into our, our blood. And, right. and so this is a, is a miraculous reality of the Incarnation. But we're talking about metabolism there. And so I, I sometimes like to kind of jokingly ask Protestants, well, did Christ ever turn bread and wine into his body and blood? And it's sort of a trick question, because he did all the time, just eating the diet of a first-century Jew. And then at the Last Supper, he does supernaturally and instantaneously what he's been doing his whole life naturally through metabolism, which is he turns bread and wine into his body and blood. But then, Gregory says, when we receive the Eucharist, we are, as it were, metabolized into the body of Christ. That, if St. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, that we are one body because we partake of the one loaf. That in some mysterious way, receiving the Eucharist unites us into Christ's own body. And that's the body that lives forever, which is why this is key to bodily resurrection. Beautiful. Well, Joe, hey, thank you so much for coming on Crest in the afternoon. We appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Joe Heschmeyer, the book is Eucharist is Really Jesus. Uh, check it out at uh, shop.catholic.com. More to come right after this. Hi, I'm Al Cresta. Do you remember writing your Christmas wish list as a child? In developing countries like Haiti and Guatemala, children don't make Christmas lists, and they don't expect Christmas gifts. All their parents earn must go to food, shelter, and water. Can you picture the joy of surprising a child with their first Christmas gift? Send them a box of joy at boxofjoy.org. A rosary and the story of Jesus is included in every box of joy. Give today at boxofjoy.org. The Heart of the Interior Life, with Elizabeth Jingle. In the third rule of the Discernment of Spirits, St. Ignatius of Loyola teaches that one of the experiences of spiritual consolation includes every increase of faith, hope, and love. Every baptized Christian receives the supernatural gifts of faith, hope, and love through their baptism. Through spiritual consolation, the gift of feeling stronger or deeper faith, hope, and love 
increases and has a recognizable intensity within a person's interior spiritual experience. There is a before and after effect. Before the gift of the spiritual consolation, a person may be exercising faith, but then after receiving the grace of a spiritual consolation, the person feels their faith increase in a perceptible way. This is true regarding increases of hope and love as well. Let us ask God to grant us every increase of faith, hope, and love precisely when we need it. For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Ciao, amici. Teresa Tamio here. If you're looking for something inspiring to give to someone this Christmas season, or maybe just a little stocking stuffer for yourself, make sure to check out the Ave Maria Radio online store. Plenty of books are sale to teach, inspire, and renew your connection with God. Speaking of sales, my book, Everything's Coming Up Rosie, is 25% off this month while supplies last. So go ahead over to AveMariaRadio.net and click on the bookstore. Happy shopping. And welcome back to Crusta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machida, sitting in for El Crusta. And, uh, yeah, great conversation with Joe Heschmeyer. He's done some great work, and I really appreciate his book, The Eucharist is Really Jesus. And the walk away from that simple. If you truly believe Jesus is substantially present, more real there than even you know me talking to you on the radio today, if you really believe that, it's got to transform your life. And if your life isn't transformed, maybe it's time to start digging in a little deeper and fan the, the, the flame of faith so that you do get to the point where uh, it illumines everything you do, everything you say, and of course, your participation in the Mass. So anyway, it's great to be with you and I hope everybody has a great evening. Bye-bye, everyone. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.